This episode is brought to you by Dismal Spice. While enjoying your family closeness and cheer this feast day, sometimes the anxiety from the pressure to have everything joyous and jolly can be overwhelming. What you're missing is the unspoken official flavor of the season, Dismal Spice. The flavor of morosity, collisionous sadness, and gloomy disconsolateness. It wouldn't be the holidays without the bittersweet aroma of Dismal Spice added to your Irish coffee or eggnog. There is no light without a vein of darkness, no highs without Tartarian lows, no jolly feast without a better left unmentioned simmering feud between siblings, parents, and brothers-in-law. When they say feast day, you say Dismal Spice. And thank you, Dismal Spice, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Actually, we are not talking about New Sun this time, because this is a special Christmas bonus episode. And we have a present for everyone. A guest, Glenn McDormand from the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast and Clay Temple Media, came on to help us talk about Wolfe's Christmas stories. Now, the warning still applies, because we're going to talk about every detail, so spoilers abound. Keep that in mind if you haven't read these, but also, like we say, it doesn't really matter with a wolf story. So Merry Christmas, everyone, and we hope you enjoy this little stocking stuffer of hope, despair, talking animals, eternal wandering, and existential teddy bears. We're going to talk about some of the wolf Christmas stories. There are stories that might have been expected to be considered Christmas stories, but, well, one of them is not, and another I'm not sure about, but one definitely is, and we're going to discuss, um, we're not going to discuss any of those, but we will go through what they are. Uh, Devil in the Forest is a novel written in the 70s, uh, between Wolf's acclaimed novel's piece and The Book of the New Sun. And both those novels and The Fifth Head of Cerberus are tremendous works in themselves. All three of them are listed as the favorite among various Wolf fans. But A Devil in the Forest? Not so much. It feels like Wolf might have been trying to produce something for a young adult market. And it is a good story, but I don't know anyone who would call it their favorite of all time. It's set in the time of good King Wenceslas. So you'd think it would be an obvious Christmas time theme. Obviously, if it has a theme, it it got by me. Another is The Tree is My Hat, which because you can work out the narrator's wife's maiden name is Merry Christmas, you'd expect it to be a Christmas theme story. But it's not. It was actually written as a horror story. Like a lot of weird fiction horror, it doesn't really have an arc of a plot. But it is in the world of a later wolf novel, An Evil Guess, which takes place a few generations later. There's also How the Bishop Came to Inneskeen, which is a ghost story on Christmas Day, which Gene Wolfe knew was entirely within the Christmas tradition. And that one is really good. But we're not going to talk about it today. And the other last one is um, Christmas Inn, 
which is about the Merry Christmas family, the, the, the wife in The Tree is My Hat. And it takes place during Christmas. It is a real Christmas story. Like I said, though, we're not going to talk about it. And that was originally published in a little limited edition book in 2005 by PS Publishing. It's hard to get. And it was also included in the very best of Gene Wolfe, which is the same collection as the best of Gene Wolfe, except that the very best of Gene Wolfe concludes uh, the story, Christmas Inn. But if you want to read it, then I suggest you get the Nebula Awards Showcase 2014. It does appear to be quite gettable for not a lot of money. So let's get to the Gene Wolfe Christmas stories that we are going to talk about. So before we get into it, yeah, this is kind of, this is fun for us because we've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. And we have with us Glenn McDormand, who I think everyone listening to our show knows who you are. I think everyone that we know of has told us that they listen to both our shows. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's great to have you with us. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, I think the Venn diagram is 100%. It is just a, uh, a filled in circle <laughs> between, uh, uh, between Rereading Wolf and the, the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast for sure. But I really liked that uh, sort of proceed that you gave, James, of uh, running through Wolf's Christmas stories. I, I, I have to, I don't know, c- confess is probably not the right word because it doesn't feel like something that's much of a secret. But I've actually never read uh, Devil in the Forest. And in fact, that omission is one of the things that was the impetus for me to turn to Brandon and while we were randomly hanging around in, I don't know, it was a bar or a coffee shop, probably it was something that was both and we were double fisting, uh, but uh, had uh, turned to him and said, let's let's do a Gene Wolfe podcast so that I have a reason to read this book. And in fact, we're, we're, we're getting close to, to covering it uh, because what, what had happened was that uh, when I was quitting a real job that I had to go to, to PhD school, uh, I said, well, I'm not going to have any money again for a long time. So let me spend part of my last real job paycheck on getting every Gene Wolfe book that I've not read, which was about half of them at that point. This was, oh, this was 2009, I guess this was too. And so I had tracked down a used copy of Devil in the Forest and uh, also, in fact, Strange Travelers, which we'll be talking about today and a, a number of other things as, as well. And uh, I had some help packing up as I was getting ready to move several time zones away. But the person who was helping me pack put all of those Gene Wolfe books in the storage box or, you know, a storage pile. And so I just didn't have them until I uh, settled down and and had this great box that I opened up and said, yeah, now I actually want to read these books that were supposed to keep me comfortable through through grad school (laughs) and did not. But we haven't gotten there yet. We're doing pieces, the next one that we're starting, and we're literally starting that in just a few weeks. We're going to be on that for a long time because that's how we do things. But I'm really excited to read this this weird YA novel that Gene Wolfe wrote. It's been one of the, you know, sort of guiding lights for us on the show. I have to admit, I'm not sure if I've finished it. <laughs> I have it. I, I can't remember. I mean, and I, I've told James before, there are a few books of Wolf that I know I've read, but um, I've, I can't remember all the details of them. And I'm really horrible with the stories. And yeah, Devil in a Forest is one that I, I know the story because I've read, heard so many people talk about it, like on Earthlist and whatnot, but I couldn't tell you if I actually finished it. Well, like any... Gene Wolfe novel of middling appeal. I mean, if we would all be so lucky if the worst of fiction was the worst of Gene Wolfe's novels. <laughs> well, we have to read it sometime because it's by Wolfe. So 
we all, I think we're all morally obligated by this point. So, but Glenn, thanks for coming on with us and talking about some Christmas stuff. We figured this would be a fun excuse to to have you come over and do some things together. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here, and uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of of Christmas as, in general, as well as I'm a huge fan of Gene Wolfe. So this is a uh, I don't know I I wouldn't I wouldn't mind uh, making this a holiday tradition of some sort. Perfect, that'd be cool. Yeah. There's enough to do readings or or something every year i feel like yeah absolutely by the way i meant to ask did you guys uh pick your name in homage to the uh hp lovecraft literary podcast i've always considered that to be like the gold standard of literary yeah we we did we just you know it was an unimaginative name to be honest it was a placeholder of a name to start and then you know it just became the the name (laughs) you know that we that we did but i will say that when we started bantering around about how to do the show our intention was to really model on what chad and chris do and we were gonna you know i was still in school at that point and said i'm gonna i'll get undergrads in the princeton theater program to do readings of excerpts for us and then then we realized how much work that is (laughs) (laughs) never mind we'll just talk (laughs) (laughs) all right um well, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to spoil these stories, so-called. You can't talk about a Gene Wolfe story. You can't explain why it's good without drilling deep into the plot, the conversations, the imagery, where it's going. And the good news is, as the famous speculative fiction and literary critic John Clute has said for 30 years, there's no way to read a Gene Wolfe story for the first time. The first read is the second read. And for that reason, there's no way to spoil them. So you can listen to this and call it your first read if you want to. But if after all I've said, you still are needlessly afraid of being spoiled, then this is the order that we're going to discuss them. Love of Fauna, and we'll discuss that at... About 10 minutes. And then The War Beneath the Tree at... 29 minutes, 30 seconds. And then, and when they appear at... 41 minutes. And finally, No Planet Strike. At. An hour and eight minutes. All right, La Bafana, published 1973 in Galaxy Magazine, January issue, which, due to the weird publishing rules that I've never understood, means it came out probably in December of 72 or maybe even November. And it was included in the Book of Days and Castle of Days and the Best of Gene Wolfe. It's probably the most variously published of all the Christmas stories that we're going to talk about here. So the story is the John Bananas family, uh, Teresa, Mark, and Maria. And the alien Zaz comes to visit. He has recently brought John Bananas' mother to the house. She plans to live with John and his family until she dies. And the whole story is a conversation between the Bananas family and Zaz. Uh, Oh, yeah, and obviously this takes place on another planet. So um, who wants to talk about the legend of Lebathana, the Christmas witch? I can throw that one out there. So um, that's something that I think nowadays more people are learning about. But the Christmas witch is the idea. uh, It's still celebrated a lot in Italy in particular, but also in, in parts of Southern Europe. And the story goes that there was a woman who was close to the baby Jesus when it was born, who refused to go or or just couldn't be bothered to tell the wise men where the baby was or to go give a gift for it, that she was too busy cleaning her house is sort of how the most of the legends go. 
And so she didn't go give baby Jesus a gift or she didn't, depending on the version, she didn't tell the wise men where they were or, or she, she didn't do something to acknowledge that he was born. Uh, Well, it's kind of varies, but sometimes she's, she was too busy cleaning the house or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That she's always either too busy. She's not mean necessarily. She's just, you know, preoccupied with her own stuff um, in all the different versions. And so then she finds out what's happened. And as a way of feeling bad, and it's also her curse, then spends the rest of her life and then of eternity sort of following around, trying basically to try and and catch up with what she's missed. And so what she does is she leaves gifts for everybody else along the way. And she's so she's never really a witch. Like like people call her now the Christmas witch, I think more because of the imagery that's popped up of a of a woman with a broom. But she's not a magical figure uh, in any of the legends. But yeah, so it's sort of the sad story of this this woman who now is very kind and helpful to everyone especially other young kids, because she missed out on seeing baby Jesus. It's still definitely a living tradition in uh, parts of parts of Italy. Right. And the the, the name, the, the, the La Bafana name, I guess we aren't really sure what the, the etymology of that is, though it, it seems mm-hmm. like it's you know, related to epiphany. That, you know, Bafana sounds like mm-hmm. epiphany. That is, a, I don't know, it's a sort of dime store etymology that, that I will certainly buy anyway. <laughs> but that's... That's what I've seen in all the, the sort of histories that are out there. That's people try and, and make that connection. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, Glenn, you guys actually did an episode on La Bafana. We did. Yeah. La Bafana is the only story that we're talking about today that we've actually covered so far because we are actually, you know, we're covering wolf stories in chronological order and are somehow taking twice as long to read them as he took to write them. Uh, maybe not somehow. I mean, I think that's, that's uh, I think fairly obvious is sort of the, the reasons why, right? Because there is so much to dissect uh, in a wolf story. But La Bafana is a story that we both really, really love. I know we're going to rank these stories, but I'll try not to tip my hand here. But La Bafana is actually a story that we recorded two episodes on. We've only released one of them. The reason we did two episodes on that is that uh, it was actually one of our original practice episodes, mostly where we were just trying to figure out like where the record button was and uh, how, to, how to go about doing that. And we decided, well, if we're going to do that story again that we did not that long ago, uh, we should have a guest on to, to freshen it up for us. And so uh, we actually had a, uh, a Christian uh, pastor uh, come on the, the show and talk with us about this story that is about the birth of uh, baby Jesus again, the second birth of baby Jesus, but this time on an alien planet. And it was really great to get mm-hmm. that per- perspective. And I, I should say that that was uh, Mike Morrison, who does a, a Star Trek podcast uh, called Metatrex that's about Star Trek and philosophy uh, that I really love. He's also a, a published fiction writer as uh, C. Michael Morrison. But yeah, this is a story that we just really, really love. Right. And I should say that one of the things about Gene Wolfe, it's kind of the common thread, and I don't know that you can say this about any other writer, is that there is not a 100% consensus about almost any of his stories about what happens at the plot level. So that's always something that's worth a discussion, and maybe that's going to come up here. The story is is really, really simple. Uh, family is at uh, on another planet. They are immigrants. Things were hard where they were before, and they're hard here. And they are a minority. They're getting help from the alien species that is on the planet. It, things are kind of friendly. And it has kind of a perspective on 
immigrants, particularly like Italian immigrants who came to America in the early 20th century and why they did it to live in such poverty. And in fact, you know, reportedly, most couldn't take it and decided that they preferred to live among relatives since poverty meant the same for either. A lot of them did manual labor on city infrastructure. Here's, a, there was, here's an old joke that I heard. Um, I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. But I got here and found out not only were they not paved with gold, they expected me to pave them. <laughs> <laughs> I like, too, in the afterward to the best of Gene Wolfe, he talks about the reason why he wanted to include this story was more, almost more out of uh, sort of playfulness because he, he talks about how the whole idea of asking whether or not you need Jesus on every planet like, do you need a savior on every planet? That's a fun thought experiment that loads of science fiction writers have talked about. And he even mentions how it's sort of a good Sunday school sort of thought experiment to get kids thinking about a lot of these issues. But then he, he throws in this line afterwards that's like, I've included it here, even though I know it's going to offend a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's so cool that it's it's the kind of thing Wolf does. Um, and part of the reason I like that, too, is because I'm not somebody who really likes likes it when people try to find like a solid theological statement behind all of Wolf's things that you can summarize in one super consistent message. And so the idea that he's put something in here that he knows is maybe not necessarily his own thought, but is definitely out there to bug people. I just, <laughs> I gotta say. And Glenn, I have to say, Love of Fauna was one of the first episodes of you guys that I listened to, but because it was one of the first, I can't remember quite right now <laughs> exactly what you what you guys came down on. Do you feel like Wolf was taking a stance on that issue of whether or not each planet has to have a, a savior? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a wonderful question. And of course, that was part of why we brought a pastor on to talk about this story mm-hmm. with us, because of course, mm-hmm. he made the compelling argument from his position of, of faith that that's unnecessary. Right, that this this happened mm-hmm. one time and it happened universally. And hey, if it turns out there are sentient aliens on other planets in the galaxy, you know, we'll we'll, we'll figure that out. We'll figure out what that means. But we know definitively, right, or at least you know, from the perspective of 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 the, this pastor's uh, Christian faith, that everyone's been saved, whether that's on planet Earth or elsewhere. And yeah, you guys are, are perfectly right, right, to, to, to wonder, you know, can, does that mean that we can pin Wolf to that position? Or, you know, what is he staking out here? Or is this just a fun thought experiment that he's doing? And I think my stance is that uh, Wolf is really just thinking about the thought experiment. I mean, I think I like to go back to, I mean, there are two two sort of things I like to go back to in regards to Gene Wolfe's worldview. And one of them uh, is that he's uh, a cantankerous contrarian and that's, and, mm-hmm. and a prankster, right? And all of that kind of mixes together for fun for him. And so that's one thing yeah. he's doing. And then, he, you know, he admits that, right? In the, in the afterward there. But the other thing is that he really is an engineer, uh, that he is always thinking about how things work and and asking the question of, okay, if I wanted to do X, how would I go about doing X? And so this story, to me, I think reads like someone who's thinking about salvation of all uh, thinking creatures out in the galaxy uh, as as a type of logistical problem that has to be solved mm-hmm. and, and imagining how that would actually happen. I mean, sadly, we don't really actually ever get a story where Gene Wolfe is trying to figure out how exactly Santa Claus delivers all those presents, you know, in one <laughs> night. But that's the oh, sort yeah. of story he would write about Santa Claus, right? Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think that's a great point that he's sort of interested here in, yeah, the logistics of how 
salvation might work in different places that, that bring that thought experiment up is, is interesting. But I, I also wonder, I was trying to think as I look at this one, I'm not sure exactly if the story is it, does it make a statement about whether or not they need, uh, because it says there is the line at the end that, um, you know, the baby Jesus has never come to my world. Yeah. Um, and then it has the Bafana sort of going around from world to world looking for him. Um, and, I, that's where I couldn't tell so much if it was like, was it actually saying that that you do need a, a savior on each world or was it bringing it up or was it kind of more the tragedy of this of this Bafana character who's kind of looking all over the universe for. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. it's yes. I think it's a plot device. Yeah. You need to kind of open it up to this possibility so that. OK, well, here's the spoiler part. I think, and, I, and I'm going to say this, that this is my reading, but I discovered that every time I think that something is obvious, there's no consensus about it. So my understanding of this story is his mother shows up, uh, you know, she's spent everything she has to get to the planet. And he doesn't really remember her well. She's She looks different than he remembers. She's wearing the same black dress, but otherwise she looks much different than he remembers, but it's been a long time since he saw her since even maybe since he was a child and it's not his mother. She's come, she says is his mother, but it's Labafana and she is coming here to die. Yes, because she knows that the Christ child is going to be born. There's a family, there's a Jewish family next door that mm-hmm. is, uh, they're about to have a baby. And she knows that when she finally attends that moment, she's going to be able to die. And so you need, obviously, the Christ child to be born. I, and, you know, it's it's not as, as deep and horrible a revolutionary idea to imagine that if there is, I, I, well, I, I remember there's a song by a Christian, uh, Jesus Rock, a singer from, I think, like 1970, about this time, uh, where he says, and if there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that he must know, and he's been there once already and has died to save their souls. So this is not like heresy, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. It's just a plot device, I think. Well, there's a a real question here, too, about even whose story is this, right? Or really, we might put that in in other terms to say, who's the like main character of this story? Is is it Mm -hmm. Johnny Bananas? Is it is it Zaz, the alien, or is it actually the title character of La Bafana? And I think the story changes, or what we think the story is, changes depending on our answer to that question. And if we think about the the story as being about La Bafana, then this is really the story about this old woman, really, really old woman, this immortal <laughs> woman who, who's been cursed with that immortality and doesn't want it and has been trying to find a way to die for over 2,000 years and has has found it finally. And this is finally her story about how she's going to set things right. She's going to do this thing that she ought to have done, the, you know, the, the, the first time. Uh, she's going to finally get a chance to do that and actually die. And 
if that is the story, right, if it's her story, then you're right. It, it is just a plot device in that sense. I mean, it, in this case, meaning the birth of Jesus on another planet, the second birth of yeah. Jesus on another planet is, is a plot device to tell us this story about this very sad old woman who made a mistake in her youth and has been punished for it in this way. But she doesn't really feel like the main character, right? She doesn't get a whole lot of lines. We don't really know anything about her. We're certainly not getting the story from her perspective. We're getting this story from the perspective of Johnny Bananas. And so if it's mm-hmm. if it really is his story or the story of him and his his wife and his kids, and it really seems like it mostly is, then then we have to wonder, okay, but what's the point of having the the birth of or the second birth of Jesus in the the apartment next door to his family? What does that do for them? Well it yeah. probably doesn't do anything for them. It's for Zaz, right? Because he's never come to his planet. Right. That which is but that's a really interesting question then. If if it's for Zaz, right? If Jesus is being born here for Zaz, why is he being born to humans and not to members of Zaz's own own species? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a it's a weird question. Yeah. So and it it's kind of one of those things too where I where I get confused sometimes with some of those stories of yeah, once you find an underlying story like that, uh, yeah, well, so what was the point of the main character? Cuz I feel sometimes like the surface stories like the family like you're saying, which honestly, yeah, as you read the story, most of the story is about the Johnny Bananas family. And um so then you get it's sort of like an ex- I hate to say it this way, but it feels more like the the surface story is a little bit more of an excuse to figure out that underlying story, which is the real story that he's he's mm-hmm. telling. Um, but then, like you said, it's sort of like the main character doesn't really have like, why is this happening for him? I don't know that there there is a good answer to that. And that's that's one of my one of my issues sometimes with some of Wolf's stories is that I feel like when you find out that the second layer is going on and is so you know, meaningful or robust or something, it, it makes it seem like the surface of the story has less impact. And like, I just don't really know what, what the meaning of the story is for Johnny's family. Well, I think it's about his, his class, right? I think this is one of these stories where Wolf writing in the sixties and and seventies. And I I think even into the eighties is thinking an awful lot about class and, you know, and in fact, definitely into the nineties, because we're really going to see that again when we, we circle back to this idea, when we talk about uh, no planets strike on this episode as well. But this is really a story in, in terms of thinking about Johnny bananas, right? The story of his family is that things are really bad on earth. There's no Mm -hmm. Employment, uh, it's it's hard to to raise a family. He's got mouths to feed and can't feed them, and so he takes a, a labor contract. That's what it's called here in the story. But you know, we should be clear that we're talking about a type of indentured servitude where some private company uh, pays to send him to this other planet where he's going to do labor for them, uh, largely for free, right? But they seem to be putting him up in this housing and so on. But it's been expensive, of course, right, to send someone and, and his family into outer space, into another planet to do that. But he's in a kind of servile labor position here. And that's a big part of the the story here i mean the the, fl- the floor being dirt and and all of mm. that sort of thing right and so this is wolf thinking about the meek the meek who are going to inherit the the earth and thinking about christ as a figure who as, as as a revolutionary right who promises that he's going to he, he's going to overturn the the social order that slaves are going to become free right the the last shall be first and the first shall be last sort of thing and so i think that 
even though Johnny Bananas and his family don't have any idea what's actually happening next door, right? I think the idea is that the return of Christ is going to fulfill that promise for these people who have been oppressed uh, by an economic system. That actually maybe clarifies all kinds of things about some of these stories for me, because you mentioned that that's definitely a big part of No Planet Strike too. But even like in When They Appear, I know I'm jumping ahead of the stories, but even that one is set in the middle of some kind of revolution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah. And so for Wolf to really be putting Christmas in the midst of that, it's kind of cool. I mean, because honestly, the like Christmas and like before the Victorians, Christmas was much more a time of the, the kind of like topsy turvy social upheaval where part of the reason like many people didn't like it, especially in the higher orders and, and whether a church or government, it was trying to get banned all the time. And part of the reason was because that was Christmas is the time when the rabble goes out and it's sort of customary to go demand food of your, of, you know, the Lords or, or to demand, you know, something, the whole trick or treat thing, which used to be part of, of Christmas instead of Halloween, that it's the, it's a time when social orders get mixed up. And maybe, I don't know that Wolf is necessarily addressing that in particular, but the whole point of really emphasizing that Christmas is about bringing someone to save the meek is that's a, that's a theme that shows up in a lot of these stories. Well, also Christmas takes place at, well, originally took place at the uh, solar new year, the time, mm -hmm. the, the darkest night of the year, the longest night of the year. And from this point on, the days are going to get longer and longer. And so it is a kind of revolution, a dispensing of the old and, embracing of the new and that's you know you mentioned and when they appear and that's not the only christmas story where there's a kind of revolution yeah hmm, cool very cool so yeah this is um this is a very wolfian story because you know you have to work out who's lying for me <laughs> you know the greatest benefit of this story is that it's really short and it's so you can really it's it all the goodness is condensed into one small piece and this story is collected in uh, the island of dr death and other stories and other stories and no that's i didn't make a mistake that's exactly the title <laughs> so let's go ahead we'll do the next one um the war beneath the tree this one first was published in 1979, Omni, December issue. It's collected in the Book of Days, 1981, Castle of Days, 1992, and Endangered Species. By the way, rather than chunk down a bunch of money for either the Book of Days or the Castle of the Otter, I recommend that you buy the more collectible Castle of Days. It's cheaper. It has everything those other more rare books have and an additional whole third section. Like I said, the title in Omni and the Book of Days is The War Beneath the Tree. But in Endangered Species Collection, it was entitled War Beneath the Tree for whatever reason. I don't know. So this is a story about robot Christmas presents in a future time. Uh, it's sort of a Toy Story Ragnarok is what I referred to it <laughs> this time last year. The child gets presents at Christmas and enjoys them all year. They're important to the child, especially in this case, a teddy bear. And it's Christmas Eve and the new robot toys are under the tree. 
And after everyone's gone to bed, the child goes downstairs to try to catch Santa. But, you know, wow, he's already come. Oh, look at all the toys. And he watches and the new toys tear their way out of their packaging and the old toys attack. And it's just a, literally an existential battle because the toys that lose the battle will be thrown into the fireplace. And I got to say, this is one I so do dearly love. This one, for me, has heart. It's about the futile struggle against age and mortality. It embraces the ancient tradition of Christmas and winter solstice as a kind of new year. And it's also about the creation of myth. It's just like, well, you know, Ragnarok, like the Irish story of the Tuatha de Danann overthrowing the Fomorians, the gods of Olympus overthrowing the Titans. The old world ends in fire or flood. The old gods are driven into the underworld. There are all sorts of influences that Wolf is drawing from that I'm not going to bother to go into now, except that even the reference to the tree is important. But it's just a wonderful, secular Christmas story with a deep vein of darkness as the best mm -hmm. of Wolf stories have. And speaking of the Christmas side of it, I mean, Ragnarok is perfect <clears throat> because this is not a, a sort of re it's not a happy rebirth story it's it's like a revolution or a renewal or it's like a new cycle but it's one that's not good for the one that's ending <laughs> it's not like a <laughs> renewal of the toys it's it's more about you it's a fight for survival i like that because it's not the kind of christmas story you usually hear and it's certainly not the sort of associations with solstice that i think we normally would think about where it's all about you know a new year is full of promise for us you know it's promise for the little boy who gets new toys but for Mr. Teddy Bear, the main guy, <laughs> it's, it's truly, you know, like you said, an existential life or death struggle that he has to fight. So it's a it's a darker side of Christmas. Well, Wolf is one of these writers who I think is uh, more realistic about kids than often are presented to us in our pop culture, especially in Christmas stories, where what we're interested in is innocence and and magic. But uh, yeah, kid, kids can be jerks. They can be pretty awful to each other. They can be pretty awful to their their parents. Part of that, you know, is that's, that's part of their growing up process. That's part of their learning process. And Wolf doesn't pull any punches on dealing with that whenever he's dealing with kids. And this is a story about these toys killing each other. They have this programming mm -hmm. that's going to do that. But the story, that story, the story about these toys that are, are going to be replaced by new toys and do not want to be replaced by those toys and in right, fact right, fight right. to the death, uh, their own deaths, of course, in order not to be replaced, turns out to actually be a metaphor for what this little boy is about to go through, which is that the story yeah. ends with yeah. his mother saying, by the way, you are about to have a sibling, which is to say... <laughs> You're about to be replaced. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's awesome. Yeah, and she says, she says, and it's just like these toys because she has no idea what he's just seen the <laughs> night before. Right. So he's going to be thinking, and I think perhaps we all feel this way when we have siblings, uh, though hopefully most of us are you know, too young to remember going, having gone through this, right, that you are going to be replaced. And he's going to think that, that they're really replaced, right, that he has to go away in order to make room for this new baby. That's the story that's unwritten here, right? In some ways, mm -hmm. this story that Wolf writes is kind of a prologue to a story that he that he doesn't write. And it's, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely beautiful. I, I have two siblings. I, I don't remember my middle sibling being... I'm the oldest. I don't remember my middle sibling being born, but the, the youngest sibling, uh, when she was born, I distinctly remember this, not because she was born and it was great and magical, but because my parents, in order to stave off exactly this sort of feeling, uh, bought me some really awesome Star Wars toys. 
Yeah, and it's one, I mean, you mentioned about Wolf being good about kids. Like, there's there's no sentimentality about that in this one. Like, even the things that you think would be very sentimental, like Christmas morning and getting toys, he's specifically making terrifying in all kinds of ways. Right. And it, it captures some experience of childhood that is right. <laughs> I think so. Like, if you didn't have those Star Wars toys, Glenn, right. I don't know what you would have been thinking. I was easily bribed and distracted by those toys. I, I will say, I was like, when are we having more kids? Like, how do I, how do I facilitate this? What do you guys need? What do you guys need for I this? I need a Death Star. <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I'm an only child, but I can remember my parents mentioning one time, and I was like, I don't know, nine or ten or something, and they were like, yeah, we thought about having another kid for a while, and it was, I still distinctly remember it being the first time I had thought about, like, Oh, I don't have a brother or sister. And it was like the possibility popped into my head and just, yeah, that feeling of just being like, Oh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like, it's a betrayal. Like, Did you feel like, Oh, they, yeah. They, no, yeah. They I was like, <laughs> all that sort of uncertainty of, of all those things. I, I distinct, like I didn't have words for it at the time, but I can remember it being so unsettled by the thought. So I guess we should say these are very different. Um, Bafana and uh, we're beneath the tree. So it's hard to, to sort of do the artificial ranking things of these two. But um, James, from what you said, I get the sense that you enjoy War Beneath the Tree a little oh, more. Oh, I could listen. I could read this every single year. I, I, I've read it probably half dozen times that I can actually remember. So, yeah, it's, it never gets old. Every time you read it, it's still, it still holds up. So, yeah, I do like this. I'm trying to think if I, I mean, I usually tend towards the ones that leave open all kinds of more philosophical or theological questions. Um, but I, I have to say, I, as far as an entertaining story, I feel like War Beneath the Tree is in many ways more fun than Love of Fauna. Right. But I'd, I'd have a hard time. I'm still I'm sitting here thinking, like, which one would I say is better? I would definitely say in terms of if you're trying to get somebody to read Wolf, I think. Well, I don't know. It depends on the person, right? Like yeah. what, what kind of things are they going to be interested in? Right. We're, we're, we're beneath the tree is definitely more of a page turner. I suppose. Yeah. Well, Love of Fauna has the benefit of being very short. It's not a short. <laughs> and it's, it's still strange enough that it could entice someone to say, ah, well, that's, I think I, I'd read another story by this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And we're beneath the tree doesn't have that sort of sense of what the heck is going on. That so many of the wolf stories. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I, obvious I what's going on. That's although there is that that moment in the heart of the story where uh, Teddy is thinking back on previous toys that the, that the boy has had, and only after you've read it and maybe thought about it a little bit do you realize, oh, he's thinking about the toys that he, you know, threw in the fire just the previous year and he's thinking about you know he's thinking about his own mortality it's really a dark and 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 tender moment in the right in the middle of the story yeah i think it's really interesting to to think about the story from the perspective of these toys and and think about these toys themselves as a, a technology as as wolf envisioning something of what the future is like especially to put that in contrast with the future that we see in la bafana where we are telling a story about the meek who have had to leave earth and have to go to another planet and uh, aren't even really able to even get paid for their labor and have a dirt floor and all of that here we're dealing with some kind of 
affluence where uh, kids are getting Christmas presents and they're Christmas presents that are way cooler than anything that we've got available to us now, right? Mm-hmm. These these sentient mm-hmm. robots that they really actually feel like they're out of a, an Isaac Asimov story, I think, in in, in some sense. Yeah. And the, the but. But there's so much going on with them, right? And that there's this idea, and again, this I think is Wolf having his pulse on what it is to be a kid, right? That that kids are changing all the time, right? That they're they're growing. That so from one Christmas to another, what types of toys they they want, and even what types of toys they need, changes, right? And I think it's easy for us to take a, a look at that, you know, as the people who have to buy toys for kids now, right? To think about that as capitalism and and you know marketing and so on. But actually, kids need different types of, of things, and so here are these toys that are designed for that, right? They're designed to be to self destruct because, well, you know, now the, the the kid doesn't need this type of toy anymore. He needs a new type of toy, one that will suit him him better to help him grow cognitively and socially and so on. That seems kind of cool, right? Then I don't have to take the toys out yeah. to the recycling or the trash or whatever. They just take care of themselves, except that the way in which they take care of themselves is really, really dark. It's this this violence yeah. uh, throwing themselves right into this this futile futile war. That's a great point. And I actually hadn't really put it in those terms, but... I mean, the immediate thing I think about about that is New Sun and how the big argument that so many people have about it is whether or not Severian causing this massive apocalypse is a is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> right. You know, it's like he kills millions of people, but he brings the new sun. Um, yeah. What, which is it? And, and it's maybe it's a perspective question, just like just like maybe what you're saying there is it's for a good purpose. It's for the boy to have better toys more appropriate for him but from the toys perspective it's horrifying so. right and, and thinking about it from the, the the perspective of the toy designer i think is maybe where i want to go with this because someone has designed these toys we're told that explicitly right that the, the mm-hmm. mother here has 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 had communication with you know someone who has sold her these toys who seems to know something about them and what they're going to do for her for her son she knows that they're yeah. programmed to self-destruct so there's a human out there who designed the toys to do this it didn't design them to turn themselves off or just go climb into the garbage can he designed them to go out in this horrifically violent way right so who's that person right, right, right. <laughs> that's yes yeah, yeah someone's working out their own issues in that. <laughs> all right so the next one uh is and when they appear it was first published in 1993 in david g hartwell's christmas themed anthology christmas forever Featuring other news stories uh, by Michael Bishop, Damon Knight, Charles DeLint, Roger DeLasney, Alan Dean Foster, many others. Later, it was collected in Wolf's Strange Traveler's Collection and The Best of Gene Wolf. Apparently, Wolf got the poem from which the title comes from the Washington Irving story, Old Christmas. It's a traditional song, apparently, but the version that Irving quoted seems to have been lost, except beyond the uh, excerpt that he quotes. Anyway, I I can't find the full version of it. But the part that he quotes is, now Christmas has come, let us beat up the drum and call our neighbors together. And when they appear, let us make them such cheer as will keep out the wind and the weather. And Irving's story implies that there are more verses, but it might be safe to assume that they don't matter. This is a story that is almost entirely about a Christmas party and various guests. There's a sister version called All the Trees Are Bare. 
And it ends, uh, now Christmas has come and our song is almost done. For we soon shall have the turn of the year. So fill up your glasses and let your health go round. For I wish you all, for I wish you all a joyful new year. And then there's a Cornish wassailing song. Now Christmas is coming and the new year begin. Pray open your door and let us come in. And then there's a North Country nursery song. Uh, Now Christmas has come and now Pappy's come home with Pegtop and Tammy, a hussif for Sue, a new bag of marbles for Dick and for Joan, a workbox for Phoebe, a bow for her shoe. It goes on. Now this story, I regularly describe this story as the darkest freaking Christmas story that you're ever going to read. (laughs) I'm sure that there are Christmas stories somewhere, someplace that are as dark, but nothing is darker than this. Ostensibly, it's about a Christmas party where every imaginable character associated with Christmas, however tangential, comes for a party. And it's a story about a little boy alone in a futuristic artificial intelligence house, a house that can generate holographic people at will. There's going to be a party on the evening of Christmas Day, and all the guests are avatars of the house. And the boy's name is Sherby. And the first to arrive is Ebenezer Scrooge. And behind him comes Ali Baba from the Arabian Nights. And why Ali Baba? Because Ali Baba is an actual character in the Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. When the ghost of Christmas past takes Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, uh, on his journey, he sees his young self reading in a, in a schoolroom. And he says, The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self, intent upon his reading. Suddenly a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real and distinct to look at, stood outside the window with an axe stuck in his belt and leading by the bridle an ass laden with wood. And that is exactly the character who comes to this party right behind Ebenezer Scrooge. And that tells you what kind of story this is. Wolf is going to parade these characters in front of us. We're going to learn a little bit about them and be inspired to look up more about them. I think there are two guests that are probably the most significant. The first is Father Eddie, who is the subject of a poem by Kipling. And Father Eddie is, I guess he's living in a hermitage. He's a, he's a priest. But the Saxons have come, I guess he's a British priest, because the Saxons have come, and they're all celebrating Christmas now, and no one comes to his little chapel. And so he just uh, has Christmas with an uh, an ox and an ass. And the other character who appears that I think is significant is Yeshua ben Yosef, who, of course, is the name for Jesus. He appears as as a young boy. And I think this is really interesting because, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that because we could talk about what the plot to this is, unless you guys want to dive in and say, and say more about maybe the characters. Not necessarily, because I think the once we get into what's also going on, that's where the real meat of the story is, that all this fun party stuff is going on, but there's a, a there's a deeper thing going on here too. Uh, well, there's there's a scene where he's talking to uh, he's kind of a Krampus character. <laughs> I, I had had never uh, found a um, 
another yeah, it's, reference to this particular name. It's a it's a mix of characters. It looks like Krampus, but he calls him Connect Ruprecht, um, mm-hmm. or calls him Ruprecht. And um, it, they're both companions to Saint Nick. Uh, they're sort of a mix of, of different regions. Connect Ruprecht was more like a like a looks like a, a a dirty peasant kind of guy who follows around with Nick, but they both serve the same purpose in a lot of European traditions of being the, the bad guy who will punish the bad children next to St. Nicholas, who's going to give gifts to the good children. Um, so yeah, he just, Wolf's just got, you know, I'm sure that sure there are legends out there where Krampus is called Ruprecht or Ruprecht looks like Krampus, but that's pretty much what it is. Yeah same character but what i think is really neat about this guy he has a conversation with sherby with the boy and the boy says you know uh, look i know who you are i know that you're just a hologram and you're really the house and you're not real and he says that's that's not true i'm a real tradition and he points out he's talking to this uh woman who's with him christmas rose he says she's a real flower and I think this goes back to a concept that Wolf touches on a lot. And I think he's dealing with it a lot in uh, the book of the new Sun. the idea of symbols that a symbol is in fact, the thing that it represents. Now the thing it represents is not the symbol. And that's exactly what he says uh, in this sense. He, I'm a real tradition. Now that doesn't mean that the, whatever I represent is me, it doesn't go the other way. In fact, I think there's actually a character in here who says, you know, he's not me, but I am him. And it kind of reminded me something from Neil Gaiman, a, another Wolf fan, who in his uh, story, American Gods, uh, near the end, he, a the, the main character, meets uh, the god Odin in uh, Norway, I guess. And he says, oh, I've, I've met you in America. And, so, and he says, no, 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 he's, uh, he is me, but I am not him. And so I think this idea of symbols and playing with symbols and the meaning of symbols and the reality of symbols, that symbols are the thing that they represent is something that Wolf hits on a lot over and over and over. Mm, yeah. And that character is St. Nicholas, where he's basically saying, yeah, Santa Claus is me, but I'm not Right, Santa Claus. Right. Like I'm, I'm the deeper meaning. Yeah, yeah. All right. So now, in reality, <laughs> this story is set at the time of a populist revolution. It's Christmas Day, Christmas, and the um, the house has sent out all these little robots to go and check on um, a house up the hill. See, the, the boy is the son of an executive of the company of the Barhane group. And the name Barhanes means essentially good shield. So I presume this means that this is a security company that has become the effective military dictatorship over the country. The little boy is in an artificial intelligence house. And the first scene of the story, like, as I said, the, the robots go up the hill from the house and discover that the CEO of the Barhane group has killed himself beside the Christmas tree with a shotgun. So the war is not going well for the ruling party. And the CEO's name is Kieran Jefferson III, a a name that implies just the sort of privilege and entitlement leadership that Wolf would have thought deserved to be overthrown. And now the boy is alone. And why is he alone in his house? Because his father poisoned 
their breakfast, his mother and his and his father's and his and his own. And his father and mother dropped dead during the meal because Sherby always dawdled over his food. And so they died before little Sherby could get a lethal dose. And so with his father dead, the house's priority fell to little Sherby instead of the house. Uh, immediately, it acted to save him from eating the poisoned food. And then the human servants dragged the parents' bodies into the basement refrigerator, and then they left. And the house wouldn't let the, uh, the, the servants take Sherby with them because, well, why? That's a good question. That in itself is a good question. It seems to me that the house is trying to keep him safe. And it can't keep him safe if it doesn't have control over him, but he's actually doing the one thing that is probably putting him in the most danger, which is keeping him in this house, which is going to be overwhelmed by the armies. And so that's why it has this party. I'll tell you, if you, you can do what you want if you stay for this party. The house should let him go, but the house can't be that imaginative. It's narcissistic software. Well, if its programming is to to keep him safe, right, to protect him, and I think I think that's the the, the inference we can certainly make. There, there there becomes kind of a feedback loop there, where you you might think, yeah, the safest thing to do is actually to let the servants take him. But if the the servants do take take him away, then the house can't keep tabs on him anymore, and so the house won't be able right. to know, right, if he's if he's safe. And and you know, I'm a new father, so this is a feeling I have all <laughs> the time. So I re- I almost kind of identify with the house in this. In this story, this idea of, 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 you know, handing over this child to someone else, even if that's the thing that's going to keep him safe. It's like, but how will I know he's safe? How will I know that? And uh, uh, thanks to the pandemic, I guess we've actually not left our, uh, our, our son with, uh, with a babysitter yet. But uh, when that day comes, this is how I'm going to be as well. <laughs> well, I think that there's a really good scene where first uh, Sherby meets Yeshua ben Joseph, uh, Yosef, uh, which is in a sense the, the Christmas child, right? Chris Kringle, right? And he says, um, and then later when he's going down into the basement to see his parents' bodies, he doesn't see the boy anymore because, of course, it's just a holographic projection by the house and it can't do it. And he says that, uh, yo, where's the boy? And he says, well, you can't see him, but he's still here. So there's still that little bit of light uh, about the Christmas story that, you know, as dark as, as dark as the, as the day gets, as the events that we face occur, even though we can't see Christ, he's still with us. And then, and then finally the armies arrive. They circle the house, they're everywhere. He can see, you know, it's a populist revolt because he can see people from the village that he lives in outside, just normal people all standing around. And they finally break into the house. The house does all sorts of things to try and scare them off. But of course, you know, it's just, it has its limitations. And he's snatched up and taken by, well, I guess it's obvious, it's a pedophile who is taking him to live with him in his house. And he's, and that's where the story Ends. And I think that, the, and I have reasons for, for, I think, why it has to end that way or why it does end that way. But for a Christmas story, what do you guys think of the way to end this story? 
I love this story. Although, you know, if we're going to rank them at the end, I, this this might actually end up being the lowest one, which is interesting because I think that it is in some ways almost the epitome of Gene Wolfe's stories, mm-hmm. by which I mean everything that Gene Wolfe does in a story appears here, right? Any sort of gimmick that he's ever used, it seems like he's he's thrown into this, into this story. We've got uh, holographic people. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've got uh, a story that is in some ways just Gene Wolfe saying, hey, look at all these other books that I've read and that I like to think about. And what if they all took place in the (laughs) same story that I'm going to make up for you? We've got uh, uh, political stuff going on here in the sense of this this populist uprising. We've got him uh, also envisioning the sort of social and economic future, like what what things are going to look like in the future and thinking about that particularly in terms of uh, of corporate power these are all things that he he writes about all the time and then we've we've got uh, this and then we've got also uh, a, a child here right which is also something that wolf is very interested in but something else that wolf is very interested in or at least you know maybe the better way to put that is to say that something that shows up in wolf stories a lot is kids in awful situations uh, and in, in particularly in abusive situations. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I've got an answer about why Wolf has this story end with this, this kid about to enter a situation like that. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's fair to say that for much of the story, or at least at the point where we realize what's actually going on in the backdrop, right? Like what is actually happening that that's not this Christmas party. It, and maybe this says more about me than it's than it is about a reading of the story, but that I at least immediately side with the uprising, right? Mm-hmm. And think, oh, right, okay. The this is a a young boy whose parents are the economic oppressors in what amounts to a Gene Wolfe cyberpunk story, and so I'm on the side of the the uprising. But Wolfe always likes to flip that. On it, on its head, right? He always wants us to see that maybe there aren't there there aren't these black and white heroes. There are no real black hats and white hats in this world. But this is, you know, if that's all he's doing here, this is maybe an over the top way to make that move. So all of that was really just to say, I'm not quite sure why he does the story. <laughs> this yeah, and I don't have a good answer to it either because it's so disturbing compared to everything else because one thing that's sort of funny about all the christmas images that he shows is that all of these people are kind of giving him little tiny images of hope and little tiny images of you know hey even when things are going to be bad i want you to remember this this goodness and like maybe that's the reason even why the house is trying to throw this christmas party and throw all these symbols at him that maybe it's trying to somehow shore him up psychologically for whatever's whatever bad is going to happen um that may be giving a little too much insight to the ai house i don't know but um but yeah all these figures are showing up and telling him that even though you know just like with with what it says about the young Jesus, that even though you can't see him, he's still here. And so it's sort of offering all these images of hope and then leaving him in a hopeless situation. And I don't know if that's, you know, a subtle or not so subtle way of this trying to be a story about like, even in the darkest night, you know, there's still a hope that something can change for the better or or that those symbols are still there. Maybe, but it means that they're really, really, really hard to believe in the way that, <laughs> that Wolf ends the story because of how dark it is. Yeah. And even the little boy at the end says, you know, I don't, you know, he's like, I don't like Christmas. He's like, this is, <laughs> this is my memory of Christmas. Where yeah. It's almost like the little boy to me kind of doesn't believe in all these things that he's been shown, even though they're all trying to, to, 
you know, give him images like that. Like I, I love the idea that father Eddie is such a big um, player in this because he's the one who gave a sermon to no one basically just to the, to the animals. And that's like a, a huge image of even when no one's paying attention to you, keep believing, you know, Mm -hmm. keep, keep moving forward. And I don't know if the message gets through, right? Like, I'm not sure if that's something that, uh, or Sherby can actually go with in the end after what he's going through. Well, I have two interpretations on this. One is, uh, thematic and one is formal. So the thematic one is that, like you said, Craig, when uh, Sherby is going down to the basement to look at his parents' dead bodies, and he can't see the Christ child, but he knows, how, nevertheless, that he is there. And that's, that's essentially the theme. That's the story is, you know, Christmas doesn't make everything all right. There's a lot of bad things that happen on Christmas. A lot of bad things that happen every single day, but that doesn't mean that God is not with us. That's the same story with Father Eddie, which I think is is kind of important, where he's alone. Nobody else is there for Christmas. And yet he says, you know, well, I've got this, this uh, ox, I've got this ass. When three or more are gathered together, he's here with us. And so therefore, He's Father Eddie is not alone for Christmas. That's the theme, and and Wolf Double doesn't back away from that. And I, in looking back on it, I kind of appreciate that. That yeah, no, it's it's dark. There isn't a happy ending just because God is there with us. The happy ending is that God is with us. The other is formal, and I we've had on. Um, on the Rereading Wolf podcast, we had an interview with John Crowley where we just <laughs> brought him on so we could talk about Hamlet's Mill and its importance on Wolf and on his writings. And the idea of, of Hamlet's Mill is a theory that the myths of whatever you, you know, take your pick. And it, all the way back to Puss in Boots, all the way back to Jack and the Beanstalks, these are stories about time. These are stories about the cosmos, about the stars going back and forth over our heads. And in this story, we have a boy who is in a house, a house in, as Hamlet's Mill explains it in in, in their structure, is the constellation in which the sun Uh, rises at a particular time. And he has an opportunity. The revolution is is coming. This is the time when the stars that are supposed to rise at a particular time fail to rise. And now you must pick new stars on which to designate your festivals and your holy days. And so he has an opportunity. The house gives Sherby the, the opportunity to go and hide in the basement with his parents and if he does that, after the house burns down, then maybe he can resurrect and come out because there's a 26,000-year cycle. And if you descend into the underworld with those stars, then in 26,000 years, that star will rise on that day at a later time. But Sherby doesn't do that. Instead, he goes moves to the next house. So say at one time, the, the sun would appear on the spring 
uh, equinox at um, within the constellation Taurus, and then later it was uh, the constellation Aries, and then later it was Pisces. And the all of these are important because Sherby is going to leave this house, he's going to go to a new house. And so in that sense, just like War Beneath the Tree, we have Wolf creating myth again. So that's the formal reason. But I think the thematic reason, probably the more meaningful reason, is that no matter how dark it is, and it will be dark, God is with us. And I, I took another look at the last paragraph again. And, and yeah, I think the way that he actually does it, um, I mean, I said, Sherby says he doesn't, says, I don't like Christmas, but he muttered to himself, but then the next part, but as soon as he said it, he knew it wasn't true. <laughs> and then he wished somehow that he'd been nicer to Santa Claus, even if Santa Claus wasn't real. And I think those last lines are supposed to suggest maybe that he did get the message somehow. Mm-hmm. There's still a little bit of a kind of faith in that, that, that even if I can't, I mean, the way I kind of read it is even if I can't, even if Santa Claus isn't real, even if I'm not actually seeing the baby Jesus right now, I wish I would have been nicer to him or had a little more faith or something like that. I mean, I feel like there's an echo of that in the, in that last paragraph. So maybe he did learn the lesson. (laughs) Um, But it's really hard to to see how that's going to last, whatever, whatever is about to happen to Sherby. I don't know, but, but that would be of course the point if you're, if you're talking about, you know, how much faith can, can last through those darkest times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> that, that one I get, I guess how you react to it depends very much on, on, I, I don't know, on what your relationship to that kind of faith actually is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you, if you see it as <laughs> somewhat sarcastic or you see it as unrealistic or something like that. Um, but I feel like that's definitely how I read that last sentence or that last paragraph. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, yeah, because, you know, Santa Claus, once again, it comes back to the idea of symbols. Santa Claus is the symbol. He's not Christmas. He's not the meaning of Christmas. And yet he's a symbol of all those things. And so he does wish he'd been nicer to Santa Claus. Glenn, does that strike you? That's right. I mean, it, it it does. I mean, I mean, thinking about the, just this idea of even if if people aren't real, we should be nice to them. I mean, that that almost seems like Gene Wolfe's entire social philosophy in a <laughs> yeah. in a nutshell, yeah. right? I mean, this is something he 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 thinks about so often is is how do we even tell if someone's a person or not, uh, and and does it actually matter? Right. If we suspect that maybe somebody might even have a small chance of being a person, then we should treat them like one, because what's the harm in that? Whereas the harm in not treating someone like a person who turns out, in fact, to be a person, right, that harm is 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 disastrous. Yeah. Right. And and that's a huge thing for Wolf. And that seems to be embedded here as 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 well. And I mean that's that's what he does with robots and, and holographic people and, and 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 so on, which we've which we've got in this story. Oh. It's definitely a weird one, though. But I will say, if you if you are into Christmas history, it's fun to to trace all the characters and figure out. And there's even one James and I were talking. I'm still not sure exactly who it is. It's the the twelve men dancing, which certainly seems like something about the twelve days of Christmas. But then you've got the fox character, and I need to go look that up because I have a few ideas of who that's supposed to be. Is is my head? I can't uh, remember. I, I'm I'm about to betray my my ignorance of Christmas songs, despite actually quite enjoying Christmas music. But how many lords a leaping are there? I think it's ten, right? Ten. Oh, is it ten? Okay. Yeah. So it's not <laughs> the twelve twelve drummer, or is it twelve drummers drumming? I think it is twelve 11. drummers drumming. Maybe there's the twelve drummers. Yeah. 
but why yeah. why <laughs> I, the guy with the fox hat then it's yeah weird. and i don't know if that's some like old mummers play but i mean he's he's obviously everything else he's pulling from the real traditions that you can track down so i'll have to go figure that out that's just just fun for me all right all right so the next one the last one that we're going to talk about no planets strike 1997 uh, from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, January issue, again, released before Christmas, 1996, collected in uh, Strange Travelers. And the title comes from Hamlet, Act One, Scene One. Uh, Marshallis says this after seeing uh, the ghost of, of Hamlet's father. Some say that ever against that season comes, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long, and then they say no spirit dare stir abroad. The planets are wholesome, then no planets strike, no fairy takes, nor witch has power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. No planet strike in this instance means that you know there's no meteors which of course would be a bad omen. And I've tried very hard to work out the meaning from this passage that is applicable to this story without success. And maybe y'all can help me with that. Maybe not. But the donkey and the ox, well, that just calls back to Father Eddie, who we just talked about. I think compared to the last story, this one is is, is pretty light and whimsical. Do you guys want to talk about the plot? I've been droning on about the plots of these things. Do you guys have, have a take on the plot of this particular story. So something that's interesting to me about the, the way that these four stories that we're, we're talking about so far have, have, have lined up is that uh, the, the two in the, the middle of this, uh, the sandwich, I'm the story sandwich I'm uh, envisioning right now is that are, are the more secular uh, type of, of story. And both are about uh, families that are, are fairly affluent and have interesting future technologies. But then the, uh, the bread of this uh, story sandwich, which is a metaphor I'm not going to, I'm not going to let go of here uh, is, 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 <laughs> A sort of religious story. It's the idea of uh, this question of uh, what if there was another birth of Christ on uh, an alien planet? And that's what we have in this story, just like we de- did in La Bafana. Though in La Bafana, right, the, the alien species, Zaz's species, are, are friendly. They're, they're, they're furry and cuddly, you know, have six legs and are, are, are quite nice. Uh, this story largely takes place on uh, a planet that is, is populated by some, some sentient creatures who are not nice at all. And in fact, who uh, more or less enslave uh, people, humans who come to this, this planet. They have some kind of... I don't, I'm not going to say magic, though maybe I will use the word magic, but they have some kind of numinous or, or weird science uh, ability to, to uh, affect their own genome or the genome of, uh, of, of a child that they're going to give birth to. And so we don't actually know what these aliens are like when humans discover this planet, but gradually over time, they come to resemble humans, except that they resemble almost what we might call the sort of perfect looking human. They're, they're actually described here as being uh, too beautiful even to, to look at. Uh, and this, of course, is Wolf playing around with the, the idea of the, the fair folk, which uh, we often think of as being fairies or elves or something like, like that, which is a, a move that we've seen Gene Wolfe make in, uh, uh, in a lot of different stories. But this is a planet where humans come and they do 
labor here and, and seem to, you know, they, they go here, uh, poor humans come to this planet in order to make a living. So there's a real parallel with La Bafana there. But the the, the beautiful people here, the, the Seath, actually, we should call them as a Celtic word, um, don't allow them to have kids on this planet. And the reason is that they're concerned that or worried that if uh, the humans might be able to do the same thing that they can do in regards to their offspring, because maybe for some reason that's a feature of this planet and not something that's unique to this species, but that if humans can mold or shape their unborn children uh, to meet their wishes, their desires, to be the thing they want them to be. The thing that they're going to want them to be is someone who is capable of overthrowing their oppressors. And so they don't allow anyone to be born, any humans to be born on this planet. This is a story uh, about uh, a family of humans who in secret or, a, you know, a, a, a wife and a husband who in secret are able to give birth to a human. And all of this is is told to us in a way that lends us to believe that this is a another birth of Christ. Though I think that it's fair to say that we all agreed in La Bafana that that actually was another birth of Christ. I think here it's a question of whether or not that's actually going to be true. But all of that is sort of the plot of the story, but what we've not talked about is the actual narrative, which is, of course, always the, the trick that Wolf is playing here, because, hey, this is a story that's told to us by a talking donkey, because, you know, <laughs> why would you not have a talking, a talking donkey? And there is also a talking ox in this story as well. We learned that the, the donkey and the ox uh, were genetically engineered to have speech, to be sentient, to, to have speech. Uh, this happened uh, in Texas, we're told, and clearly an allusion to Texas A&M University, where uh, Gene Wolfe went to school uh, briefly before uh, going off to war in, in Korea and then finished his degree at the University of Houston. But clearly these have been created at Texas A&M. They've been sent to uh, this poor planet, or, or a poor planet anyway, to do some work, which is what they were for, though not many of these animals were created, uh, it turns out, for reasons of them being perhaps economically uh, inefficient or financially inefficient, but also I think just kind of freaking people out. And in <laughs> fact, they're quite illegal on, on many planets. Uh, and in fact, definitely are illegal on the planet in question here where they find themselves. Uh, and so in fact, they pretend not to talk on this planet. But the a bulk of this story actually is about the donkey and the ox, how they can talk and what's become of them now that they're not working as farm animals, which is what they were designed to do. But they actually become uh, performers in a kind of mime show, uh, like equal partners with this uh, human character who has recently died. In fact, he has died on this planet. He's been killed by the Seath, these these, uh, these beautiful people, uh, because he was actually trying to get them back off the planet, because that's another thing that these people do, is they don't let anyone leave. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, that's my, my long-winded explanation of, uh, of, of this story, at least an intro to talking about it. And I like the, the idea, too, like you said, about not knowing if this is really what's going on, or if it just kind of has the same shape as a nativity story. And do you have a sense, or are we supposed to, to wonder about whether or not it's true? Well, I think that we are supposed to wonder because I think there's, of course, there's a good argument for either position, which is, I mean, that's what Gene Wolfe does and that's what makes him so fun. Uh, but the 
the the deal here, right? What's supposed to let us know that um, that this maybe is is the birth of Christ again on this alien planet is that it ends up mimicking the the nativity scene as we we get it in in the Gospel of of Luke, and in, importantly, right that the, the born in a manger. There's these animals around and so on, and there is this legend, this uh, this this legend around Christmas. I don't actually know what the origin of this is. Perhaps uh, perhaps uh, one of you will will know this of of animals uh talking on uh, on christmas mm-hmm. day being able to talk on christmas day just for like one day only mm-hmm. because of the the magic of christmas and of course these animals we know can talk for perfectly rational scientific reasons that they've been created to talk them talking is not actually a miracle or any kind of magic in this moment but they have remained totally silent while they have been on this planet and they have been on this planet for a long time because if they talk they will be destroyed they will be killed but they talk in this one <laughs> instant they talk to tell people nearby humans nearby that they need to not rat out this family mm-hmm. because they're all under this sort of like social pressure to turn this family in uh, for their own benefit uh, part of that benefit maybe is a kind of actual remuneration but part of the benefit of course is also just your to protect you and your own family a, a powerful motivation for all of us of course but they they break their silence in this one moment to do that but in doing so right it, it appears to people as if this is a miracle but we know that that's not true we know this is a joke right so then the question is is the whole thing a joke right is it all just a is it all a joke right is is wolf winking at us through the entire story or is is the the joke actually a way for us to glimpse into the truth and i'm not sure i have a strong take on this do you guys i don't actually and but but i feel like that is the point like not being able to know if it's the truth um and it kind of gets back to that same issue of faith or whether or not something is real just because it's not real, <laughs> you know, not, I mean, not symbols. Um, that, that even all the things in all the legends that come through in, um, uh, and then they are, or, and when they appear, they're kind of saying, yeah, we're not real, but we're still real. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there may be something about that here going on as well, but to even to bring in the miracle, the animals talking, yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. I love how that, that pops in there as a way to say, well, even if it's not magical, it's still very real. It's still very true. Well, and maybe what really matters is that the the people on this planet believe it, right? And that that's that's the whole thing that we're we're, we're told here, right? That that the 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 rumor, the legend of this savior figure who's just been born on this planet has spread. People know that this person is here, and we get all of this build up, right, to this idea that if a human is born on this planet, he is going to be someone who is going to free humans. So again, we have this idea of Christ as a figure who is meant to overturn the social order, and, and in particular particular to liberate the oppressed right, slaves and mm-hmm. other other servile people economically oppressed people and whether or not this actually is Christ born again all of the humans on this planet are are now believing that this person actually is that has has been sent to save them and that might become a self-fulfilling prophecy right Mm -hmm. he's going to grow up believing that they are going to believe that about him and so he's going to give an impassioned speech here he's going to go from town to town giving passionate speeches i mean this all in the imaginary sequel that i'm writing right (laughs) right but but giving passionate speeches that he maybe he is just a normal dude who's just been born on this other planet but because people think that he is something other than what he is because they believe in him because they believe this story the story becomes true. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's not. Yeah. It may not be literally true, but it's true in many more important ways. Yeah. Well, he's 
whatever, rather than being, you know, Christ again, he's a Christ. He's certainly a Christ on this planet. And his birth does, as Glenn pointed out, parallel so many things from the Christmas story. Yes, the talking animals. Yes, the uh, Father Eddie, of course, it's the particular animals that Father Eddie has in his service. He's going to be hunted by the power structure. So you have you have the story of Herod again with uh you know seeking out to kill Jesus and you know I presume his parents are going to have to 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 get out of town to to escape. Uh, it also has a lot of other things that Wolf really likes, such as uh, fairy lore. And uh, so you know these are people who have been somewhat abducted into the land of fairy. Yeah. Now, did we mention that the planet was called She? S-I-D-H-E. I'm not sure if we did, but that's that's the name of the planet, right? Right. And so it has so many elements that you, you see over and over in Wolf stories that you know that Wolf just particularly loves. I really like the the uh, the line about when he says, you know, we, I'm pretty sure we were born on Earth, but there they called it Texas. That was a that's a particularly good line. And it just has so many things that it's, it's just such a Wolfian story. But. I don't know that it really comes together the way any of the other ones do. And so if I was going to rank this, it's probably not going to be anywhere near uh, the top of my ranking, even though it's really well written. It's the craft is all there. There's also another literary device that Wolf loves to use that he he is employing here that that he uses quite frequently, which is to act as if this story is actually a, a transcript of a conversation, an interview mm-hmm. with the donkey. But we are only getting the donkey's part of it. It's as if uh, you know he's doing a podcast with someone and they're recording on separate <laughs> tracks, and we've only got his track, so we don't ever hear the questions, we don't hear the responses, and so on. But I think part of what makes this such a beautifully written story is that it is. Totally Told in the first person in a story in which Wolf is really trying to give the narrator a distinctive voice, which is something he's an absolute master at. So even if the story maybe doesn't uh, seem quite as satisfying on its on its own as as La Bafana or any of these others uh, to you, James, the voice of the narrator is so strong and so fun that it really carries this one. Yeah, I agree. So should we try just for the sake of of the trial do we want to try and rank these yeah. we've never really done a ranking before james and i have never done something like that so but um yeah let's I do it okay i don't know that we'd all agree no no <laughs> well, hopefully, I, I hopefully we won't all right so i'm gonna give i'll start i'll start and then um we can um we'll just each do it we it's there's no judgment here there's no judgment i'm not gonna <laughs> uh, I, i'm not going to rail at you when you when you put them in the wrong order but okay so i'm gonna pick them <laughs> in order from, from least favorite to best to best. So for number one, I'm going to say it's no planet strike. This is an, a really good story in a lot of ways, but frankly, for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, it's not quite as successful, not really even nearly successful as the other three. And then for number two, I'm going to say Labafana. Like as I kind of in, insinuated, uh, you know, it's really great that it's so short <laughs> and that if I was going to say to somebody, here's a wolf story and it, this is a, it's a Christmas story and it's kind of, it's really kind of interesting. It wouldn't be a big commitment to them. And yet 
it's a little thin, I think. All right, so now the final number three and four. Final, um, maybe the ranking make doesn't make sense. We should have gone the other way, but what's done is done. So the last two, which one would I pick for the best? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, mm, right now, right now, it's War Beneath the Tree on number three. And number four, the best Christmas wolf story is And When They Appear. Because And When They Appear has so many levels to it that I'm still trying to work out. And every one of them for me is satisfying. So that's my ranking. I, and I'm going to stick to it for now until next year. <laughs> Very cool. Well, how about I go and then, Glenn, we can let you finish right. up. That's not good. Sounds right. good. So I think the only thing I would change from that is that uh, I, I might put Labafana last, not because I, and I hate doing that because I don't think it's a bad story, but um, I think it's one of those wolf stories where I it finishes and I like it so much that I want to know more about the backstory of the the sort of deeper story <laughs> and just not having as much there um, is I just want more. But again, it's very short. It's telling it's a little almost more fable like in certain ways. Mm-hmm. I will just say just from the sheer desire to want more, um, I would probably put that last. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah, I think the best one for me is um, definitely. Uh, and when they appear for all the reasons you did, although Glenn, when you sort of, I hadn't really brought the, the, some of the more class side of that into, into it quite so much. And that really keyed me into really how much all these stories are working with that in so many more levels than I had, had thought about. So that almost makes me want to reread war against the war beneath the tree. In a different level. That's the key thing about Gene Wolfe, right? Is that uh, you know you can read these stories every year as a as a personal Christmas tradition and get something new out of each yeah. and every one of yeah. them every every reading, which is just so fantastic. In fact, this was the first time I think that I really really loved the War Beneath the Tree, uh, and and it's because I'm I'm a new dad. We're getting ready to celebrate oh, uh, yeah. what will technically <laughs> be our son's second Christmas, but his first Christmas he was in the NICU, and you know we didn't know it was Christmas really. You know we were exhausted <laughs> that day, so we're getting ready to celebrate our first family Christmas in our home and so on. And so that story really, uh, well, one, it resonated with me a lot more, but then it also terrified me about, you know, the future, about what the toys are going to be like and what if we decide to have another kid and so on. But it's a story that spoke to me in ways that it hadn't before, which is, you know, one of the beautiful things about, well, I guess all fiction, but something that Wolf is certainly a, a master of. Well, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to uh, be a real contrarian here and actually <laughs> say that I, I think And When They Appear was my least favorite of Monster. these stories. Mm-hmm. But I, I know, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 I'll I'll put the caveat on there though say that you know we've only done Brandon and I on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast have only done one of these stories mm-hmm. so far we've only mm-hmm. done La Bafana but I actually think that and when they appear would be my favorite story to to do a dedicated podcast about. In fact, Brandon and I would almost certainly end up doing two episodes on this one story. And I think we would suck so much out of it and really enjoy that process of it. But thinking about just having, but having just read all of these stories altogether, I had this real feeling that everything that's in, or maybe not everything, but many of the things that are in and when they appear are in at least one of these other three stories, but in a sort of more concentrated form. Mm. Uh, and, and 
some of that's about the the actual form of these stories, right? And when they appear is, I think, technically a novella. It's it's a much longer mm-hmm. story, and so it, it's got more richness and more breadth to it. Whereas the other three are properly short stories, and Wolf is so good at making short stories be short and <laughs> and to really like laser in on on one to three key ideas and to really hammer them and uh, and so I think I appreciated that about the the, the other three mm-hmm. other three stories and uh, and and so I think that's where I'm gonna gonna rank them a little bit uh, more highly coming into this I, I will say that I had actually never read no planets strike before I'd read all the all the others uh, no planet strike you know it is in strange travelers so it was in this box that uh, that was uh, missing for 10 years of my life and I, I've been which I've been reading from randomly I always take wolf's own advice about short story collections and never read them straight through like they're a novel so I, I had had not simply gotten to no planet strike yet and so perhaps some of my, uh, my my enthusiasm for that story might simply be about novelty, but that's the number one story for oh, cool. me. I think for a lot of the same reasons that you you gave, Craig, which is that uh, there's there seems to be a lot of openness to it, and mm-hmm. and this is the story that leaves me really wondering what happens next. And I think that you know we can really compare it to La Bufana in the sense that in some ways they're kind of the same story, mm-hmm. but in La Bufana I don't really think that the story is about what happens next at all. But No Planet Strike definitely is. And yeah. in fact, wondering what happens next is maybe even really like how we solve the, the question of whether or not this, this person really is Christ or is just someone people are going to believe is a, is a savior figure or not. But I think also that the, the world is a little more richly conceived. There's a little more mystery to the world, I guess, right? The alien species in No Planet Strike is much more developed than in La Bafana. And I want to know more about them. It perhaps also helps that they're oppressors and that we have this savior figure who maybe is going to come back and throw off those oppressors. So there's a kind of hero's journey mm-hmm. there that, that, that's hinted at that maybe I want that is just tugging at me, right? I mean, that's a story structure that works on all of us, whether we want it to or not. So that might be also sort of bumping that up for me. But yeah, that was the one that I was most excited about. Uh, and then I would probably put uh, The War Beneath the Tree, actually, as my my second story, which, which, which surprised me as well. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Well, there you go, folks. So if you need an order to read all the Wolf's Christmas stories now, you have three different ways to do it. There you go. There's probably still at least one different mathematical right. thing. Right? <laughs> well, Glenn, just for the one or two people who may listen to us who haven't listened to your show do you want to give a plug for any of the Clay Temple Media things? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the the opportunity to do that. And thanks so much just for having me on. This oh, was yeah. a, a real blast. But uh, yeah, I'm really here in my capacity as uh, one of the two hosts of the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, which uh, I co-host with Brandon Buddha, where we are reading almost everything that Gene Wolf wrote in uh, chronological order. We started with uh, his short story, Trip Trap, from uh, the late 1960s. And we are uh, now finally approaching the, the the novels of the mid 70s so we're going to be uh starting peace in 2021 uh and you know it's uh it, like like some aspects of rereading wolf it is uh you know two guys reading some stories reading some gene wolf together and uh, and talking about them with uh with the occasional guest great awesome and i should say too you have many other shows your broad name for all of it is clay temple media and you guys have a whole lot of podcast shows and even publish some stories on your website so there is a vast, vast media empire growing. I have no idea how media. they do that. That is crazy. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, not, not sleeping is, is, uh, is how we do that. <laughs> but yeah, Neil Gaiman and Star Trek and medieval history, all kinds of stuff. Going Weird on. tales. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Lots of stuff. We also have a show called Eller Sign, a weird fiction podcast where we we like to read Lovecraft and and Poe. And I think we're actually going to start doing some Gene Wolfe over on that show as we've realized that uh, doing Gene Wolfe in chronological order means that we're not getting to a lot of these late stories, certainly the sort of post 2000 stories for a really, really long time. So we might start uh, approaching them from the other direction over there as well. Very cool. Well, like I said, I doubt that anyone listening to us hasn't listened to you already but, but if if for those one or two people who haven't definitely definitely go check them out otherwise glenn thank you so much for the time and and for going through the stories with us this has been a lot of oh fun. yeah guys thank yeah, you guys so this much. was so much fun for me so thanks for thanks for having me this was just a a, a, a total blast and uh yeah, yeah, to handle this many Gene Wolfe stories at once was, sort of broke my brain in some, <laughs> some ways where Brandon and I sometimes do hour-long episodes about five pages, right. you know? <laughs> right, yeah. This was refreshing. Good. All right, well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. I saw a werewolf with a pool cue in his hand Walking through the streets of Christmas in the rain He was looking for a place to play some pool Werewolves of Christmas again Oh, no worries. Oh, yeah, this is no this is all of us. I do a sweep for the oh, cats. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like I'm in my office right now, and usually we James and I record at night. Um, usually after at least one of my kids is in bed. Oh yeah. So right now there's like everybody's the office is like right off the kitchen. So oh like, yeah. Well, that's where I'm recording too. Is right off the kitchen. So. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like hitting the mute button anytime I hear him do stuff. I'm like, this is gonna be a mess. Ah, oh, my stupid brain. My stupid <laughs> morning brain does not work well. Um.